Well, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming. And I hope uh, the food is good. And you, okay. <laughs> um, thank you for coming for the, to this, the first uh, lecture in this small series <coughs> we are doing uh, with the support of the Mershon Center. I mean, with the Center for Latin American, American Studies. By the way, I'm a Brill Trigo director of the Center for Latin American Studies. Uh, we are doing this uh, series, Latin America in the Global Scenario, uh, the first, uh, the first uh, lecture will be Daniel Henninger, uh, who is a, 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 a professor at Webster University in St. Louis. And he's one of the most uh, outstanding uh, um, um, researchers and, 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 and people around uh, who are knowledgeable in Venezuelan affairs, current Venezuelan affairs, political affairs. He's a political scientist and has done intensive and extensive research <coughs> and publications on Venezuela. Uh, he will talk today about how red is the pink tide in Hugo Chavez, Venezuela, who, a title and a topic who has uh, multiple implications beyond uh, Venezuela. And, uh, and uh, so probably we will have a uh, healthy and productive discussions after, after the talk. But anyway, I want to take advantage to uh, inform you about the uh, forthcoming uh, lectures in the series. The, uh, there is a flyer outside, so you can pick it up and have, uh, and, 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 and have the information with you. But anyway, the next, uh, um, the next talk will be on March 10, the same time, the same place, March 10, by Thomas Walker. And the topic will be Electoral Observation, a Tool for Democratization and Peace in Latin America. Tom Walker, who happens to be here with us, is a, a, a very prestigious scholar uh, and a specialist in, in, in Nicaraguan and Central American uh, uh, politics. The, the, the third uh, lecture will be uh, Saskia Sassen. Uh, will the, uh, who's a, a very, very well-known, uh, uh, an outstanding uh, scholar, and one of the most uh, important uh, uh, um, uh, theorists on, on globalization and global studies. Uh, she will be talking on neither global nor national, novel assemblages, assemblages of territory, authority, and rights. That will be on March 21st. And the, the last one will be a talk by Eduardo Gamarra uh, on May 14. Uh, I, we don't have a topic uh, yet, but uh, he's uh, one of the most uh, uh, renowned scholars on Bolivian uh, affairs. He will be talking on Bolivia because I asked him to do that. So he's going to be talking about what the current situation in Bolivia is and all these implications. So we, I, I think we, we have been able to put together a very interesting series. And so I hope to see you uh, in, the next, uh, in the next features. Uh, and thank you for coming and join me to welcome uh, Professor Daniel G. Henninger. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, I want to make sure this microphone is working. Is it okay? 
I guess so. Okay, excellent. And uh, I want to start by thanking uh, Abril, Abril Trigo, for inviting me. Carol Johnson has provided me with wonderful hospitality while, while I've been here. And uh, I'm, I'm really uh, honored to be included in, in this roster of speakers you have. And glad that Tom Walker is here, too. It kind of reminded me that... Um, Back, you know, Tom has been doing work on Central America for a long time, and in the 1980s, everybody in graduate school seemed to be flocking to study Central America. The Nicaraguan Revolution was fresh in people's minds. There was a very serious uh, revolutionary war going on in El Salvador, Guatemala, and and so scholars kind of were all rushing to study Central America. Uh, meanwhile, Venezuela attracted very little interest. Um, there were a handful of us of my generation were interested in studying Venezuela. Um, now, all of a sudden, it seems as though, you know, Hugo Chavez has elevated the profile of Venezuela, so it's become the country du jour. And then almost every month, I get a, an email from, somebody, from a graduate student saying, I want to go to Venezuela, and I want to do this study. Could you recommend? Who should I talk to? What do you think of this project? Which is very flattering. Um, I, I swim in a small pond at home. I'm not at a major research institution, and it's kind of gratifying to know that people actually will go back and say, oh, I'm going to, that guy wrote a book or did an article. I think I'm going to ask him what he thinks I should do. But you should all make sure you come back and hear Tom because um, just because Central America isn't on the front pages doesn't mean that there aren't important and interesting things going on in Central America and you have a chance to hear from one of the outstanding scholars of that region. So it'd be, be a good day to come back. And then I, well, I guess the last of my preliminary remarks is I, I should thank uh, Hugo Chavez for making it possible to build an audience today. Um, we settled on this date a long time ago. <laughs> well, before we knew, in fact, that there was going to be this uh, referendum yesterday, uh, if you haven't heard the news, it's reported that Chavez, uh, the, the C, allowing, doing away with uh, term limits, won with a little over 54% of the vote. That may not turn out to be the exact final total, but it looks like something on the order of 40, uh, 54 to 46%, which is just about what all the polls, both the opposition polls and the pro-Chavez polls, we're showing uh, in, in the end. So um, Hugo Chavez can run for re-election in December of 2012 as a result of that vote. And, you know, regardless of whether you think this was a good idea or a bad idea, I'll give you my opinion if you ask for it later, um, I think that, that one of the things we saw yesterday was that in a very highly polarized political situation, which has been characterized by some violence on the extremes of both sides, not as much as one might expect given the degree of polarization, but nonetheless some troubling signs of increased conflict. Um, Venezuelans voted in an orderly and very mature way. The, uh, an independent internal electoral organization is called Ojo Electoral. It's a little bit like if you're familiar with the Civic Alliance in Mexico has organized itself, independent citizens, opposition and government people, monitored the election throughout the country, and more or less reported that at least the balloting process itself, the, the casting and the counting of, ballot, of ballots was carried out in a, fair, in a fair way. Now, we could raise questions about the campaign itself. We could raise questions about the, you know, the, uh, the abuse of incumbency, about the, uh, the, the private opposition media and its behavior. So there's a lot of that, that you know, doesn't settle the question whether this was free and fair election, just simply to say that the ballots were counted fairly, but they were. Uh, I think I'm pretty confident in saying that because I respect the people in Ojo Electoral. 
Um, and and uh, you don't, of course, see much coverage of them in our press, do you? Probably no one here is, I'm going to guess no one's even ever heard of them, and yet they consist of a national network of Venezuelans who care a lot about preserving democracy and the space for democracy in the country. So, so I, I chose this top, the, the title uh, some time ago before we knew the referendum was going to be yesterday, and I've called it How Red is the Red Tide in Chavez's Venezuela? And I'm sure you've heard of the pink tide by now, uh, referring to a kind of wave of electoral successes on the part of the left throughout Latin America, which brought Hugo Chavez to power, Evo Morales in Bolivia, uh, Correa in Ecuador, uh, I guess you could include Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, some other figures such as the Kirchners, Bachelet in Chile. That is, we sort of saw a wave, if you will, of elections that brought... Um, what leftists to power throughout the region. Uh, Chavez, you know, there, there's sort of a way that's become popular looking at this red tide. Um, it, it's popular in the U.S. press. I think it's less accepted among the leaders in Latin America. People like Bachelet, for example, the president of Chile, has repeatedly said, don't try to just categorize us. Uh, each country is building movements responding to internal conditions, and if you're going to try to create a divide between the so-called moderate left, which is the people like Bachelet or perhaps uh, Lula now falls into that category apparently, and on one hand, and then the so somewhat so-called irresponsible left consisting of Chavez, Morales, Correa, maybe Ortega, on the other, that you're making a mistake. But nonetheless, people like Andres Oppenheimer, the well-known columnist for the Miami Herald, uh, and others have insisted that we sort of divide this left into these two hostile uh, camps, or if not hostile, at least different camps. And, um, and, and there's a, there is, I think, sort of an element, there is one element of truth in that division. And, and I'll sort of illustrate it by referring to the difference between uh, Lula and Chavez. Not a thought original to me, but I, I, I don't have the source at hand to give you the citation. But um, the, in a sense, Lula was once seen as kind of a radical figure who would come into power in Brazil and work to overthrow capitalism and reinstitute a kind of new form of socialism based in the worker party experience with participatory democracy in some of the larger cities, right? Lula was going to kind of be a revolutionary leftist. Well, Lula has more or less not proven to be that revolutionary or that radical. Lula, it seems, has kind of made his peace with the system and has decided, rightly or wrongly, successfully or unsuccessfully, that he will work with the system and then, in a sense, try to redistribute the benefits almost more like a social democratic approach as we might see in, in Europe. Whereas Chavez's attitude has been to try to revolutionize the system itself, right? I'm not going to make the system work better in the interest of the poor. I'm going to change the system. Now, we're, actually, we can question whether or not Chavez has been all that successful in that project. Maybe coming from different directions, Lula and Chavez might have some things in common. But nonetheless, Insofar as there are different kinds of lefts, we might be able to think of it that way, that there are people, that there are leftists like Morales, like Correa, like Chavez, who at least rhetorically insist that they're trying to revolutionize and change the basic functioning of the system versus the Bachelets and the Lulas and some of the others who seem to be content with running the system and supposedly or hopefully making it work better for the poor. So there, there probably is something of a, it would be foolish to say there isn't any difference among these 
among these leaders. So the, the main things that I'm going to talk with you about um, in, the, in the time remaining, and I should watch, watch that time closely, we have to 1.30, right? Which means if I stop after, if I stop before 1, there's plenty of time for questions, I hope. I think that's right. So things of the talk. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit. Let's see if that's Ah, good. What kind of socialist is Chavez? When he talks about socialism of the 21st century, what does he mean? And how does that fit into what socialism has traditionally meant in terms of the Venezuelan left? Second, I'm going to talk a little bit about class polarization in Venezuela, about experiences with populism as it relates to socialism. And then finally, I'm going to share with you some results from... um, from a study that will be published in an article of a David Smildy, who's a Venezuelan specialist at the University of Georgia, and I have, are co-editing a book that should be out later this year with Duke University Press that looks at what's going on at grassroots in Venezuela, taking the spotlight off Chavez and putting it more on what citizens are doing. And I want to talk a little bit about um, some key themes about socialism in Venezuela, particularly the second two themes, participation in governments, participation in economic development, I should say economic management. I'm going to tell you a little something about what I found about what Venezuelans think about those subjects, not whether Venezuelans think like we do about those subjects, but what, what they think about those subjects. So I'm going to start out by just um, uh, not quite reading, but talking a little more formally about sort of some background on Hugo Chavez, how he came to power, what he says his goals are. Um, when Hugo Chavez Frias first burst into the international headlines in 1992 as the leader of a failed coup against an elected government, the first instinct everywhere on the left was to fear a repetition of the brutal military regimes that dominated South America, especially the Southern Cone and Brazil. I remember very well in 1992, initially hearing this news of a coup and thinking, oh, this is going to be the worst. The country's been highly polarized. Um, what's, this is, you know, in, in contrast to the rest of Latin America, which seems to have exited the so-called bureaucratic authoritarian period. Now here's danger of a real of a military coup in Venezuela. Well, in, you know, in contrast to what most of us thought was happening, we quickly found out that many Venezuelans, especially the poor, quickly embraced Chavez as their avenging angel against the corrupt and moribund political class who was ruling the country at that time. Now, seven years later, in December of 1998, these Venezuelans elected Hugo Chavez to the presidency based on his promises to abandon neoliberal economic policies and to call a constituent assembly for the purpose of rewriting the Constitution. Chavez kept the first promise immediately and subsequently won two more presidential elections in 2000 and 2006. And then he won a recall organized uh, by the opposition, but he defeated that, that attempt to recall him from the presidency in August of 2004. In that period, he also survived the well-known coup attempt in April of 2002. In fact, the coup was actually successful about 48 hours. Brought a uh, figured uh, person named Pedro Carmona, who was head of the business council, was sworn in as president. He lasted about 48 hours in Venezuela and called Pedro El Breve for that reason. And um, he also survived a, a subsequent attempt by the, by, uh, by the opposition to get him out of power by organizing a crippling strike 
or we should call it work stoppage. I'll use the word parro, meaning work stoppage. Uh, that crippled the oil industry for three months, from December of 2002 till March 2003. Um, backed subsequently by petrodollars and by his talents as a social communicator, Chavez surged into the leadership of the hemispheric left and rode high on the rising pink tide throughout the region. Since first organizing a dissident faction of the military in 1982, Chavez has moved steadily to the left. For his first three years in office, he concentrated mainly on political reform, fulfilling his pledge to rewrite the Constitution, then winning a new presidential election in 2000. In November of 2001, he shifted to reform of Venezuela's social and economic structures. He used authority granted by the National Assembly to issue a series of decree laws advancing urban and rural land reform, new social programs, and major reforms in the oil sector, which of course is crucial to Venezuela as an oil exporting country. <laughs> After surviving the coup of 2002 and the December pot work stoppage, Chavez moved again to deepen the, Bol the Bolivarian uh, revolution, as he calls his project. In late 2003, he accelerated the educational and health missions. They call them misiones, it's kind of a milit quasi-military term, which may be troubling to many people. And he created Mercal. Mercal is a network of subsidized markets in poor areas of the country that are, exist to provide subsidized basic uh, foodstuffs to the population. In 2005, Chavez proclaimed that the Bolivarian Revolution would build, quote, 21st century socialism. He announced this at the World Social Forum in Puerto Alegre. He accelerated programs to encourage growth of cooperatives, microenterprises, and worker democracy schemes so-called, as he calls it, social economy. After a landslide victory in the presidential election of December 2006, he announced nationalization of industries that had been privatized during the 1990s, recovery of national control over the production of heavy crude oil, which had been controlled by majority-owned foreign enterprises. He now insisted that those be, become majority-owned Venezuelan uh, enterprises owned by the state oil company. And, the, and he announced the formation of a single party of the left, the Partido Unitario Socialista de Venezuela, kind of abbreviated PESUV, P-S-U-V, PESUV. Um, as a result of his outspoken criticism of neoliberalism and Washington's pretensions to global hegemony, the international left shifted from skepticism to admiration of Chavez. That is not the opinion, however, of Venezuela's traditional left. Most of the prominent leftist figures from the period before 1998 are convinced that Venezuela is undergoing a slide toward authoritarianism. What Teodoro Petkov, a former guerrilla and several times presidential candidate in the old regime, calls totalitarianism light. Some charge that Chavismo, like Peronism, is rooted in military nationalism, personal charisma, deep resentment towards elite on the part of the popular masses, and anti-imperialist rhetoric. Unlike Perón, however, Chávez has generally respected human rights despite the context of extreme uh, political polarization in the country and threats from the disloyal opposition. I should add here that I'm well aware of the, of the Human Rights Watch report that claims something quite different. Um, that report, you may know, has been a subject of controversy. Uh, a large group of people from the Latin American Studies Association, not just Venezuelanists, have, have challenged that report and the methodology of it, and it's created a kind of a back and forth over the, over the report itself. Um, in contrast to Perón, Chavez has eschewed anti-communism 
and chosen to accelerate revolutionary tendencies rather than to try to simply consolidate power. Whereas Peronism's secure base was organized labor, Chavez's deepest and broadest support is among the marginalized sectors of the country. His social programs, the Misiones, benefit the poorest sectors the most. By investing profits from the post-99 oil boom in the social economy, Chavez hopes to achieve social inclusion, not just economic growth. Um, after his 2006 re-election then, he announced his intention to reorganize what he calls the geography of the state by creating a national network of grassroots consejos comunales, community councils, entrusted with, set, with, with setting priorities for local spending. Uh, for local spending. For Chavez, in rhetoric at least, the social economy and participatory democracies are the two building blocks of what he calls 21st century socialism. Um, I should add here that you probably are aware that the difference between yesterday's referendum and the one of December 2007 was that the one in 2007 was a huge package of amendments that included redefining property relations, that included... um, uh, redefining, creating new branches of government. It was a very ambitious program that sought kind of a pretty radical overhaul of a constitution that Chavez himself had held up initially as a kind of sacred document when he returned in 2002 from, uh, uh, from the coup attempt. He held up the constitution and called it a popo vu, the people's document, you know. So this attempt, the sweeping changes in the Constitution, in my opinion, did not go down very well with the Venezuelan people, and is one reason why, why he narrowly lost. As in contrast, yesterday's election was pretty strictly focused on re-election of, the, of uh, presidents, mayors, and governors. And so that probably made a big difference. The other thing I'll say now, kind of depart from the script for a minute, that probably made a big difference was the fact that the political party, PESUV, has become a much more effective political machine. That is, it has the ability to go out and mobilize voters. Now, whether it has ability to mobilize for real deep social revolutionary change is another question. What it has proven itself effective at doing is going out and getting people to the polls. <clears throat> so I think that the two big differences that account for why the referendum of a year and a half ago narrowly failed and this one passed has to do with, first of all, the uh, the, 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 the fact that the questions were different. This one was narrowly focused on the question of indefinite re-election uh, and, uh, and uh, the, he- the heightened capability of the political party to mobilize. Um, I'll add one more factor, if I could, a third one, which is the uncertain economic times. If you read our newspapers, you would think, well, Chavez should have lost because the oil prices are falling and aren't people going to lose confidence in him? I have a hypothesis. It's only that. I haven't, I haven't tested, been able to test it. I haven't seen the data to test it yet. But I think for a lot of poorer Venezuelans, even ones who might be discontented in many ways with the corruption, the inefficiency, the problems, that in many ways they know, they know oil prices have fallen. Many of them lived through the 1980s when oil prices fell, and it was the poorest sectors of the population that paid the highest price. And I think that many of them may very well have felt that while that, that somewhere in the future there's going to be a reckoning. Right? You, can't, you can't go from $147 a barrel to $35 a barrel without economic consequences. It will be some time before those consequences are felt. The country has over $100 billion in reserves and different funds. It's going to take a while to draw those down. The money is there to support the social missions for another year, maybe two years. 
But sometime there's going to be a reckoning unless, unless the economy turns around. We all hope that happens, but I don't hold your breath. So, so I, 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 at least I have the hypothesis, and it's nothing more than that since I don't have the data to support it, that at least some Venezuelans who might have been reluctant to give the president this huge carte blanche and to change the Constitution may have said, well, when I think about who's going to pay the price for the fallen oil prices, better that Hugo Chavez should be there than perhaps to open the door for some of these guys that were in charge of the country before to come back. <clears throat> so, um, is Chavez really a socialist? Is he, is he a leftist? Um, I'll take Martha Harnecker's uh, definition of the left as, quote, the constellation of forces that oppose the capitalist system and the logic of profit and that struggle for a more humanistic and solidaristic alternative society constructed on the basis of the interests of the working classes, notice the plural she uses, classes, free of material poverty and the spiritual impoverishment engendered by capitalism. Um, so keep this definition in mind when we ask the question, what kind of socialist is Hugo Chavez? Now, James Petrus, a well-known Trotskyite leftist intellectual, um, has often expressed a lot of skepticism about Chavez's socialist credentials. He's characterized the Chavista project not as a construction of socialism, but as, quote, an alternative social welfare regime, unquote. Only oil, Petrus has said, allows Chavez to balance the interests of the poor and Venezuela's capitalists against one another. Quote, the conceptions and perceptions of the major antagonists among the right and the left are both open to criticism. The right for underestimating the political and institutional support for Chavez in the current conjuncture, and the left for projecting an overly radical vision on the direction of politics in the post-referendum period. That's a quote from Petrus, 2005. He may have changed his tune by now, but at least at that time, that was how he felt about it. Now, the misiones that deliver health care, Barrio Adentro, Education, Mission Robinson and others, the subsidized markets, Mercal, certainly resemble a welfare product, project, but they're also something more. Misiones are also intended to advance the participatory, quote, participatory and protagonistic, unquote, goals of the Bolivarian Constitution of 1999. By protagonism, the Constitution proclaims its goal of vesting the people with the capacity to hold government accountable and, to part and, and their right to participate directly in the construction of a new social and political order. Hence, in addition to health clinics staffed by Cuban doctors, Barrio Adentro also involves the formation of neighborhood health committees that go door to door surveying conditions, educating residents, and advising them on services. Monsieur Rivas, the Educational Vocational Training Program, seeks not simply to prepare Venezuelans for jobs in the state or private sector, but also to, to take, for them to take a place in the social economy uh, by forming, for example, cooperatives. Harnecker, by referring not to a single working class, but to something she calls working classes, implies that Chavismo is built on a heterogeneous social base. This base includes not only a small segment of the middle class, it can be very problematic among formal workers. Um, the Chavista social base is defined more by the notion of exclusion. It, the, this base consists mostly of those who feel that they were excluded by the neoliberal policies of the 1980s and the 1990s, and who therefore see the Chavista project as one is building what they regard as a more inclusive 
program of social and economic development. This notion is most deeply rooted among the urban and the rural poor, especially among those then who feel excluded not only economically, but also by their race. Now, race is, as everywhere, a complicated issue. It's bound up with how we construct race in our minds, not just by the color of our skin. Um, I've given a a number of talks in which some Venezuelans have gotten up and said, how can you say that race is a factor in Venezuela? Don't you, you know, some of you know the, the myth of mestizaje, right? You, you have a version of it in Venezuela. No, race doesn't matter. You don't understand, you North Americans, that race does not matter in Venezuela. Now, there's another side of this, however, on the left, which is the opposite, where, in which if you, look, if you look at the photographs um, of, of crowds, um, you see, on the one hand, that the Chavistas are, you know, uh, dressed more casually, as you might expect. There are certainly more Afro-Venezuelan faces in the crowd. Generally, you would see darker skin, but you see a lot of light-skinned people as well. And if you look at opposition marches, you see people, yeah, they're more, they're, they tend to be better dressed. Um, you can tell that they're more, much more uniformly middle class, especially in Caracas, where there is a sizable middle class. Um, but they're not exclusively white. <laughs> So the, the truth is somewhere in between, you know. There really is a kind of race, race plays a role in the in the book I talked about that I'm co-editing. Uh, Luis Duno Gottberg has a very interesting piece on race in Venezuela and media coverage, in which opposition marches are always characterized as civil society on the move. Right? The opposition is civil society. The Chavistas are almost always portrayed as turbas, the mobs. Yeah, it's, and, and that's the construction, you know, that, that this is the rabble. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of prejudice that civil society are those who are middle class and, and, and perhaps lighter skinned in general, but without stereotyping, okay? And, and then the opposite image for the Chavistas. Uh, Steve Elner, historian of the Venezuelan labor movement, has expressed misgivings about the relative weakness of Chavismo among the proletariat and the revolutionary potential of the marginalized workers of the informal economy. Elner says, and this quote is from 2005, so it actually precedes the formation of PESUV when the main Chavista party was the uh, Fifth Republic movement. So the quote reflects that. It is in great part for this reason that structural solutions to marginalized sectors' urgent situation have not been well-defined by Chavez. Added to this ambiguity is the internal structure of Chavez's Movimiento Quinta República, which lacks formal links to society, as well as the lack of discipline and organizational experience of members of the marginalized classes. The sui generis characteristics of the Chavista movement from its founding in 1982 makes even more uncertain its future ideological evolution. Some of you know that Steve and I work closely with one another, so we, we share a lot of opinions, but he's more pessimistic, I think, because he, he thinks that the lack of a more formal, organized working class base is going to be a severe handicap for the possibilities of a more kind of radical or social, agenda of social and economic reform in the country. Um, I, it's important to realize, I think, here that Venezuela is an oil company, country, excuse me, <laughs> They have slipped there. As in, that's generally the attitude of those who I'm arguing with. Um, as an oil-producing and exporting country, um, you know, it, it, it lives off oil rents. There are years in which 80, 90% of the exports come from oil. 
And not surprisingly, this has consequences in terms of the political culture, in terms of culture. It's much more of a consumer society than any other place I've been in Latin America. Um, and it has a very small working class. There are some significant industrial areas in the eastern part of the country, some traditional textile and factories. There's a petrochemical complex. But when you look at the figures, the, the, the size of the traditional working class is very, very small in Venezuela. Every once in a while, I'll see uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a group in Britain, uh, Alan Woods, kind of one of these Trotskyite groups in Britain. They get all excited every time there's a factory occupation. And you think maybe this is Chile all over again, where people are in, uh, occupying factories in the industrial cordons outside of Santiago and things are polarizing. No, it's not. I mean, it, whatever we might be, I might be, I am sympathetic to the idea of worker control and management of their own corporations. To me, that's what socialism is about. But at the same time, every time the, the, one of these, these, work, these occupations takes place, the Trotskyites immediately begin to say, aha, this is the this is the where the revolution really is rooted, and this is what the government's got to support. Well, of course, it raises all kinds of complex questions and problems for the government in terms of property rights, in terms of uh, of, of, of economic efficiency. All kinds of problems come up. The point is, though, that you know there's sort of an attitude among some people on the left who are sympathetic to Venezuela somehow that if the government only got behind the workers, not not Steve Elmer, by the way, but you know, that, that somehow this revolution would advance more quickly. And I think that's just naive because the working class base of this revolution, if it's worthy of the name revolution, is, is considerably smaller. Um, I don't want to get too... I was going to talk a little bit more about the social base, and I think what I'd like to do is show you a few slides. I don't know how this is going to work. I may have tried to do too much in terms of too much data. Um, if anybody's interested in seeing this, if you write me or email me, I'll be happy to send you this, uh, th these tables, with the exception of the first one I'm going to show you, are drawn from this, from my, one of my, one of two chapters I'm contributing to this book I'm co-editing, and, and I, I'll be happy to send you the, the chapter if you're interested in, in seeing more. But first let me show you a table that is not mine. Uh, it comes from the 2004 election, and it kind of illustrates the degree, of the, the degree of polarization in the country. And I know somewhere up here, here it is. I don't know how well you can see that. But um, basically, this is, this is a survey that was done just before the 2004 recall election, which Chavez won overwhelmingly, over 60% of the vote. And the first category, AB, those are the wealthiest Venezuelans. The, uh, and it's for that reason that if you look, uh, the, the left-hand numbers are the raw fit numbers. The right-hand numbers are the percentages. And, of course, any of you that have any background in sampling and statistical analysis know that there just aren't enough people in the AB column to really say anything too definitive. But that reflects the fact that very few people in AB, that, that's basically the upper class and the middle class. Okay? Middle class spills over a little bit into the C category. That would be where you'd find the formerly employed people in the economy. And then D would be people who generally live, if not in poverty, kind of on the margins of poverty. And the E classification are the poorest people in the country. So let me see if this... Ah, this way. There we go. So uh, just quickly, you can see if you... Just here, let's just stick pretty much with the urban... This, this here are different provinces. If you look across at the urban, you can see that back in 2004, uh, 
very large majorities in these first three economic categories uh, were in favor of, yes, recalling Hugo Chavez. And then as you move down, look at how radically the polarization shifts. Okay? Um, I, I'm going to skip down to the bottom column. I've got rural, and I've got the Andean states. The Andean states in Venezuela are more traditional states. Zulia is an interesting situation. Zulia is the Lake Maracaibo region in the western part of the country. It has a strong regional tradition. It's the original heart of the oil industry. Now, actually, more oil is produced in the east. But it's the, it's a very, it's the most populous state. Caracas, the metropolitan area of Caracas, is the largest population center. Maracaibo is the largest municipality, not the largest metropolitan area. And Zulia is the most populous state. It's about a little over, over two million people. And, and so it's, it's a really crucial area. And you can see the degree of polarization here as well. But what's happened subsequently is that Zulia is uh, one of the few places where the opposition has managed to win control of the governorships. That's very important because Zulia borders on Colombia. It's also, besides an oil region, an important production, uh, important for production of cattle, dairy. It's a big agricultural region, and there has been intense conflict between peasants and landlords. With uh, and, and the real problems along the Colombian border, because as you might imagine, on the one hand, the FARC likes to find, though not particularly in Zulia so much. Tends to try, sometimes crosses the border to try to find sanctuaries to escape the Colombian army. But also in Zulia, the AUC, the Colombian paramilitaries, have come across the border to support Venezuelan landowners. And while you get a lot of reports every time the opposition is victimized by political violence in Venezuela, what you don't get in our newspaper are reports about how many peasants have been killed in the Zulia, in Zulia province, which is controlled again by an opposition governor. So, this is a particularly important area strategically within the country. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the. Um, about this survey work that I did in Venezuela in uh, 2006. And just give you a few, uh, a few results of that, and that'll probably get us pretty close to when I, I should adjourn uh, for your questions. The. What I'm about to show you is some survey work that I undertook uh, in, in summer of 2006. I worked closely with uh, Luis Lander, who actually is the head of, of Ojo Electoral these days. Um, he's a sociologist with uh, Central University. I worked closely with him because, as a sociologist, he knows the, the map of urban Venezuela. And, and I knew I couldn't do a very expensive. I had a small amount of money, I had like $7,000 for this whole project. I had a friend who's a very competent professional pollster in Venezuela who gave me a nice deep discount on doing the study. And what I decided to do is rather than take a national sample, I wanted to pick out those barrios, poor barrios in Venezuela, which were the strongest Chavista areas of the country. And I wanted to ask questions about how people living in the strongest, most pro-Chavista areas think about democracy and how they themselves in their own minds define what they want in terms of this idea of participatory and protagonistic democracy. Now, I still had a structure question, so I can't say that I wasn't as a gringo imposing conceptions. You'll see a few questions that come out of my own 
you know, acquaintanceship with American electoral studies. But nonetheless, that was my goal. I also uh, sampled a smaller number of urbanizaciones, the name given to middle-class areas. They tend to be anti-Chavez, though not necessarily all of them as strongly as some of the barrio areas are pro-Chavez. I'm going to mostly talk about attitudes in the barrios here, um, even though you'll see some of the data covers, covers some, other, some other things. So, ah, before I do that, I put these up front, so I'm sorry, I got this a little bit out of order. This map is actually of the results of the most re- of the December 2008 regional elections. And I did want to show you those because you can see the colors in blue were the ones that were won by the opposition. The colors in pink or red were won by Chavez. The white is simply a place where they didn't have a, a governor election in that, that time. Now, if you look at this map, you think Chavez won overwhelmingly. But, of course, the map is geographical distribution, not population distribution. If you look, Zulia, which we've already talked about, Tachida, a more traditional state which borders on Colombia. So, essentially, two crucial states that border on Colombia are controlled by the opposition. Uh, the Caracas metropolitan area, it's kind of a complex governing structure, that was one. By the, by the opposition, what the, the kind of the super mayor's position. Um, and also in the eastern part of Caracas, an area of poor, very poor area called Petare, was also won by an opposition candidate. Then this is also a very populous area. This is, this, this is a less important province. But this province also, Aragua, is another important population center. So uh, overall, if you look at the overall results of this election in December, they're pretty close to what we just saw happen with a lower turnout. Nationally, Chavez, the, the Chavista forces won some probably around 54 or 55 percent of the vote, pretty close to what the results were yesterday. But there are important places in the country, both from a geopolitical perspective, also from a population perspective, that, uh, that actually voted for opposition figures. In the, and I'm very, I'll be very curious. One of the things I want to do in a few days when the Electoral Council releases the results is to sort of see how Chavez did in yesterday's referendum in some of these areas where the opposition has had some electoral success in the past. That gives us a clue. Is it Chavez that they've lost faith in, or is it the local governors and mayors that they've lost, that they, that, that they wanted to replace? So now back to this, this study. You can see I, I, I interviewed uh, 550 members in the barrios, and we interviewed 300 people in the urbanizaciones. If you combine this together, obviously you get a, a big enough sample that you only have an error margin of about 3.5%, but you can't do that. These are two separate samples, right? I, I, I didn't draw a national sample. So I want to be careful. I probably will slip now and then and make generalizations about the Venezuelan population as a whole, and I shouldn't be doing that. But it almost inevitably happens because as you talk, you make these generalizations. So you'll have to keep that in mind. Um, I, what, what are the things we did? I gave them, uh, the pollster went out. We interviewed people. How do we draw the sample, by the way? Uh, they would go out to, for example, at metro stops right in the barrios, uh, at the foot of the barrios, where they wanted, where people were returning from working in the city, and we would interview people coming off the trains. It was very difficult to do house-to-house kinds of interviews, right? And a lot of interesting methodological issues about how you draw a good sample in Venezuela, but that's for another time. Um, one of the things we did was we had a card with nine different criteria of democracy. 
there be competition among political parties, the system of justice treat all citizens equally, minorities have the same right to express views as a majority, that the media, TV, press, and radio enjoy freedom of expression, that one can vote without worry, clean vote, that a secure and trustworthy electoral system exists, that the government address the demands of the poor, which I was very interested in because that's sort of a measure of thinking about democracy in substantive rather than just procedural terms of inclusiveness, that the state guarantee education and health for everyone, another kind of notion of democracy as inclusion, uh, that all social sectors are included and enjoy the same rights. Now, the rights, if I had to do this again, I think of this as a pilot project, I probably would do some of these questions a little differently, I have to confess, but that was the card. And people were asked, what are the three most important to you? Let's just stick with the barrios for the moment. The system of justice treat everyone equally. You can see that, in fact, the three most uh, prominent answers, I can find my notes here, well, um, the system of justice, 43.8%, secure and trustworthy elections, remember they could pick up the three, so these are not going to add up to 100%, and, uh, and that all social sectors are included, the state guarantee health and education, 51.5% of people in these Trevisa strongholds included that among their three. In the middle class areas, though, it's interesting that while not as high, still, even in the middle class areas, 42.7% were willing to give that answer. Now, it, it, one of the things I'd like to find out in the future is, is, is this more a social democratic conception and this one more of a more radical conception of what this would mean? That I can't say from the data. But it was a little bit surprising and, and in ways heartening to see that high a level in the middle class areas as well. Um, not surprisingly, somewhat higher scores in the middle class area and things like system of justice treat everybody equally. What I did expect, it was confirmed, was that this would be the lowest. Venezuelans came out of the 1990s exceedingly skeptical and cynical about political parties. So it was not surprising at all that the, the, the classic idea of polyarchy, as Robert Dahl and other political scientists think of democracy, which dressed so much upon the idea of competition among parties, should have ranked so low, apparently, in the minds of people. But there's more to come in that subject in a moment. So then we said, can you tell us what the most important characteristic is? And so this reducing it down to one. And not surprisingly, it's more scattered. But again, look at how relatively high this is compared. Now, it's, not the, it's the highest among the barrios. It's not the highest in the, urban, in the urbanizaciones. But still, inclusion seems to be fairly high in the agenda of Venezuelans. Again, that's... It's a little bit hard to say on the basis of, you know, 25%, for example, because, but look at some of the other things they chose. Government must adjust the demands of the poor. So if you add these two together, you've got more than, you've got about 41% of the population picked these two measures of inclusion in the poor areas, whereas less than 20% picked it in the middle class areas. But now came a serendipitous discovery. I had, we had no missing data. Everybody answered the questions. We did this. So then the next question was, pick one of these nine criteria to get rid of. Pick something that you, if you had to give up one criteria of democracy, which would it be? 
very, something very interesting happened here. Well, first of all, this was to be expected. What wasn't expected was that, look at the, this. Now, again, I don't want to make too much of this. I feel like I need to go back and, and the, you know, there's methodological questions. There's, there's some issues. I'd like to do this on a larger scale to see whether or not this actually shows up in a national sample the same way. But it was pretty amazing that the middle class areas, you can't just add these together. I gave totals, but, you know, this, remember, this vastly overestimates, oversamples the middle class. Um, but here's the most, what I thought was most interesting. Whereas nobody refused to answer the first two, in the barrios, a third of the people said, I can't take something away. Right? No, I'm not going to take away political parties. I'm not, these are all important to me. We didn't plan that. Um, that was only a third. And there were more, even more people willing to say, competition among political parties is not so important to me. But I still found it very interesting that even in the barrios, even more, higher percentage, I don't regard it as completely reliable. Right? I, I, I really understand that, that in many ways this is a first cut. Uh, I'm hoping eventually, maybe in the next year or two, to be able to go back and do something more extensive and more ambitious. But I, was, I found that to be a really interesting um, response. And, and very few people, you know, when you come down to the media, well, okay, higher percentage of people in the barrios chose that. And believe me, the, in the barrios... People love to watch their soap operas, and they were very upset when Chavez took Global Vision <laughs> off the air because the Global Vision was one of the opposition television stations, and it was deeply involved in the April 2002 coup. Its license was up for renewal, and uh, was that last year or the year before? I'm forgetting now the timing, and, and the government denied its renewal. Global Vision still operates in Venezuela. It has cable. Its, its audience share is approximately 13% of the population. State television, which is really the only reliable Chavez mass media, only has like a 4 or 5% penetration of the population. So actually they shut down the broadcast by, by, taking, by not renewing their license. Global Vision, probably the most virulently of the anti-Chavez stations, still operates cable about 25% of Venezuelan homes have cable television. As you might expect, concentrated in the middle class. Well, a lot of Venezuelans demonstrated against this, even Chavistas. And this had, I think this had to do to a certain extent with the sense that, well, maybe Chavez has a good reason here, but we're nervous about shutting down any, you know, any media in any way. And I also think it has to do with the fact that, you mean my soap opera is going to disappear? You know, a lot of these dramas are very popular and very important to Venezuelans. So anyway, uh, you can, I don't want to dwell too much longer on this. Uh, there isn't too much else that attracts people as a program other than, other than no, I'm not going to take any of them away. Or, yeah, if we had to get rid of something, party competition would probably be the first thing to go for a lot of people. I, I, I really would want to check this before I, you know, I'm just, I feel pretty good about the sample and I, maybe I should be a little more confident, but I'd want to go back and and see whether or not this holds up in a more systematic, full sample in the future. Um, oops. What happened there? We asked people about tolerance. Kind of let's stop here very soon. And uh, among Barrio residents, okay? 
supporters of the government were asked, or, you know, who should be allowed to speak all the time? Who should be allowed to speak at a community meeting? I sort of stole this question. You may, have, those of you familiar at all with research on American political attitudes, may know you. You know, they'll ask, you know, should an admitted communist be allowed to talk in the high school? My favorite one is, should an admitted homosexual be allowed to speak in the high school? But they've been asking it since the 50s. They don't want to change the question. Um, so I, I tried to sort of use that as a framework. And among, among burial, this doesn't, don't, don't look for it as to add up to 100. Um, in the burial residents, 97% said everybody ought to be able to speak. Opposition, well, a quarter of them were a little bit <laughs> restrictive. But 75% said, yeah, someone opponent wants to speak. Now, does this add up to real behavior? Anthropologists ought to go out, attend the meetings, and see whether or not, by that method, this finding holds up. Um, among residents of the middle class, very similar kind of results, maybe a little stronger. But everyone ought to be able to speak. Even supporters of the government ought to be able to speak at a community meeting, they say. All right. Does this hold up in practice? Of course, I don't know for sure. I still find it encouraging. Whether it's representative democracy or participatory democracy, you need to have tolerance. And in fact, I would argue that participatory democracy probably needs tolerance even more than representative democracy because you expect people to deliberate, talk to each other, exchange opinions. Now, just one or two. I'm just going to show you one or two tables about economic control, and I'm going to skip a couple of them so we can finish up. I was really curious, though. We talked already about government participatory control. I wanted to know whether Venezuelans have a notion of democracy that might be tied to worker control. Confess my own prejudices. To me, socialism is not government state ownership. Socialism is really economic democracy. It's giving people real control over their working lives. That's my ideological prejudice that I start. So I was wondering, regardless of my ideological preference, what do Venezuelans think? So this, this shows you their attitudes about two enterprises. Alcasa is a big state-owned aluminum company in Ciudad Guayana, big industrial area. Petroleos de Venezuela is a state oil company. They were, uh, they were said, do you think each enterprise should be owned by their own efficient professionals? That was what I was advised by the, by the uh, in other words, they named their own managers. By professionals designated by the president, which is in fact how the state oil company is named. Through participation by professionals and workers, co-determination, which has kind of been talked about in Venezuela going back 30, 40 years now. They imported it from the Germans or only by the workers, autogestion, self-management. Well, you could see the results here. In the barrios, only 8% answered self-management of this state company and participation, but there was a high degree of support for co-determination, co-management. But when you come down to the oil company, the goose that lays the golden eggs, well, we're not so happy about that. Still a very low percentage only by, work, by workers. A lot of them support co-determination, but a majority, even in the barrios, prefer professional managers, either named by the president or actually, even in the barrios, three out of ten, almost a third, actually would have let PDVSA name its own management, which is kind of what the work stoppage was about. 
I'm gonna, this next one, I'm not going to go through. I, I tried this out with three other types of industries and found, I could say, similar results. Um, just want to show you maybe one more. I, I, this is chancy methodologically because the sample sizes are not so big. But I looked at workers in Caracas or in people in the barrios in Caracas. Right? Caracas is not all that industrialized. Tends to be service workers, the informal sector. Zulia, which is where you have a heavier concentration of oil workers, and the industry is important, and Bolivar, which is the industrial um, dynamo of the north of the uh, southeastern part of the country. And once again, it's interesting that in Bolivar State, right, this is where you might most expect people in the barrios to be supportive of economic democracy measures. And yet at least, and again, this is the numbers are so small that they really need, I need to go back and do more work. But it's certainly not encouraging for the notion of economic democracy. Um, Pedevesa, similar kinds of findings, that's not too significant, except in Zulia, this big populous oil producing state, tended to be um, more favorable towards co-determination. So I'm just about done here. Um, one last one. I just tried to get a sense of how, how many people participate. About 43.7%. This is not quite right. It's actually, they were asked whether a family member or they themselves participate. 40, about 44% of the population said, no, we don't participate in any of the misiones, any of the popular. Family member participates, about 5% said yes. 23%, almost a quarter of those surveyed said they participate. They're involved in one of the misiones themselves actively. And if you combine individual and family together, it's not just a matter of adding up. It's they were actually asked separately. Um, about 28.2%. So altogether, if you sort of just look, put it together to the percentage of individuals reporting themselves as a leader, about 23% of participants and about 12% of all the respondents, about one out of eight, said that there were leaders involved in some way. In the health committee specifically, that's the, that was where most participation showed up. 47% nearly said there were participants. Now, what that means, I'm not sure. Could mean they went for services. But um, I, I still found that a very high level. I think they know what participation means as opposed to going for a service. And in the community councils, which are sort of the heart of what Chavez wants to build in this socialist vision, 18% uh, of all participants, 18% of all respondents were participants in the community councils. Now, 20%. Gee, that's low. What are the other 80% doing? So how many people in this room have been active in any sort of municipal or grassroots political organization lately? Uh, don't put your hands up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's all relative, right? I mean, don't, that, that's, that's not necessarily bad news. It just gives you a benchmark. All right, so that, um, you know, there's this vision on the one hand, I'll kind of wrap up here, that what Chavez has been about, I, I had a more formal conclusion, but I think I, I'll just try to finish more quickly in the interest of your questions. Um, you know, there's this one image that what, you know, Chavez is doing is simply taking the oil money and kind of, you know, building this kind of superficial socialism. And certainly the most extreme of the opposition says, uh, not totalitarian light. Petkoff is not among those I would characterize as disloyal. He's just opposed. 
But there are sectors in the population that say that he's going to use the oil money to build Cuban-style communism here, right? That's what they think it's about. Now, Chavez has the, and, and his closest supporters have this other idealistic vision that really what they're doing is fulfilling the promise of this sort of participatory, idealistic vision of socialism propagated by Che Guevara. So that's what the Bolivarianism is really about. It's pretty much, I think, a work in progress. Um, I can tell you what, Chavez, what it's not. I'm not sure I can tell you what it is. I think that in terms of my original agenda, we do see that there's a kind of a commitment in Bolivarian Venezuela, at least among Chavez, to uh, creating kind of a participatory democracy. There's limits, I think, to what Venezuelans themselves want uh, that perhaps are not quite in accord with what the president wants. It's not too surprising, and nonetheless, that the president won the referendum yesterday because I think for many Venezuelans, they see that Chavez has been the figure that has managed to include them and to a certain extent empower them in the population. On the other hand, there were a lot of Chavistas, and I'll end with this. If you read Aporea, the board I referred to before, called The Beat, where Chavistas talk, Chavista activists talk to one another, a lot of people were saying, yes, but, to yesterday's referendum. They were saying, yes, we can't do without Chavez, but we need to build an authentic grassroots political party. That but's pretty hard to achieve. And in some ways, it may be harder, even after yesterday's result, than easier. So... Uh, I think I'll stop there. Thank you. So we, we stop at about 1.30, right? Yep. Okay. So I'll be happy to take questions. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Well, right? Yep. What's going on there? Okay. I mean, behind the rhetoric of anti-imperialism, what's really going on yeah. right now? And the second one is about these grassroots organizations. Mm-hmm. Of course, there has been the criticism that Chavez is too interventionist right there, that he has created them, that the government is supporting them financially. Right. And of course, they have a lot of say. So what have you seen in your studies okay as far as how the people are, are actually being empowered, and if there's any room for maneuver okay. for the people, what kind of possibilities are there? Well, the first, okay. first question about um, corporations. Largely, yeah, Hugo Chavez continues to welcome foreign capital into the country. Frankly, I think that's a wise, pragmatic decision, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, this is an oil-producing country. It requires a high degree of capital, risk. Venezuelans do have an oil company that even despite the, the loss of many qualified, skilled personnel after the Parro of 2002, continues to be a country that has a relatively capable and developed oil sector of its own. It's been suffering in some ways by lack of capitalization in recent years, and it has suffered a brain drain to an extent. Nonetheless, it's, it's capable. But no modern oil company anywhere functions individually anymore. Almost any major exploration, almost any major development is predicated on shared risk, joint investment, all kinds of marketing uh, agreements. I think what's most problematic about, so, so in that area, 
uh, Chavez, what the main thing Chavez has done, which I think is more important, is that he has renationalized and re-socialized ownership of oil in the ground. I wish I had more time to explain this, but if you go back, some of us remember, if we're old enough in the room, that something called the New International Economic Order of the 60s and 70s, which the idea was that there was going to be, the Brandt Commission kind of endorsed this, if you remember them, this idea that we were going to sort of create a more equal north-south world by creating global institutions, global regimes, that would regulate the prices of commodities through buffer stocks and not exactly OPEC, which doesn't work with buffer stocks, but the idea was if OPEC can manage the price of oil, maybe it would be in the interest of everybody to manage commodity prices. Then, of course, we've got neoliberalism and the rush to the other side of the spectrum. Okay? What happened there was that you know, increasingly in the 80s and 90s, what neoliberalism meant in mining and oil was opening up the ground, opening up the subsoil freely to foreign investment without really negotiating a, f- a fair, fair is in the behind of the beholder to a certain extent, fair share of profits or restrictions. That's been ignored in research on neoliberalism. But that's the essence of neoliberalism, is to open the subsoil to more radical na- uh, exploitation of the subsoil without striking the kind of deal that you ought to get from the investor. This is essentially a matter of class struggle between landlord states, which is what Venezuela is, and capital. Okay, so we ought to put it... What Chavez has achieved is he's, re, he's reasserted control over the subsoil, sovereignty over the subsoil. And it's happened in other places. That's what Evo Morales, in part, has tried to do. That's what they're trying to do in Ecuador. Even the Chileans, finally decided that we had to stop giving away the copper and to impose a royalty of sorts for the first time. Even the Chileans finally came around to realize that they had opened up the subsoil so much to foreign investment that they were really, in a sense, not getting anything back during the boom. So let's distinguish then between ownership of the subsoil and negotiating a deal with the foreign investor from ownership of the enterprise itself. Venezuelans own the enterprise. Um, I could t- I've done a lot of research on this, and I'm not going to say anything more about it now, or I'll take up. I could talk for another hour on this subject. But the, you know, what Chavez has basically done is said that okay, you foreign investment is welcome, but we're going to raise royalty. Royalty was kicked back up to um, what was it? To 30 percent, 50 percent income tax. And on top of that, profit sharing, according to how much of the industry you own, but a majority has to be owned by the state oil company. Now, if you actually look at you know, what the, that deal entails, I sort of did a little exercise. I don't have it with me to show you. Oil companies still make big profits under that arrangement. Yeah. But the government, the state, gets a whole lot more back than it was before. And you know that's even more important now that oil prices have fallen? If oil prices had fallen like they have to $35 and Chavez had not redone the fiscal regime, the royalty, and the tax, they would be in much bigger trouble. Everybody said at the time, ah, you're untrustworthy. They're not going to make investments. Well, they got an ongoing fight with Exxon. Exxon Mobil never does these deals. It's corporate tradition. So they're going to fight that out. They've had some disputes with Conoco over compensation but Conoco is willing to negotiate. 
Everybody else, total, all the other companies, more or less have said, okay, we'll do business. This is business. This is business. I don't fault Chavez for that. I don't regard, I think, you know, I, I, that's, I think, a great area of accomplishment, which even if, the, even if the opposition got in, they wouldn't change that. I'm going to add one more thing that this reminds me of. In 2006, the opponent of Chavez, the governor of Zulia, Manuel Rosales, his, his oil platform was very interesting. What he proposed to do was not, not to privatize the oil company again. What he proposed to do was to give everybody in Venezuela a share. Okay? Kind of like Eastern Europe. You know what happened there. Give everybody a share. And they were going to get a black credit card. He called it Minegra, which has all <laughs> kinds of race implications as well. Black credit card. And what would happen would be, according to the price of oil and the profits, you would they put into your account an amount of money that you would then be able to draw upon, which is basically what we do in Alaska. You get a check, annual check in Alaska. That's your share of the rent. Okay? That's what we promised to do. And I thought this was a very interesting test of what Venezuelans want because it wasn't in the sense where we privatize the oil company, it'll run more efficiently and better and capital will come back and all those arguments. No, it was a different kind of liberal individualism that says each of you owns a share and I'm going to give you your share and you're going to get the money. And it was interesting that this did not catch on. You know, it says something very interesting, I think, about political culture in Venezuela that this idea was roundly rejected. You know? There's a sense of corporate national ownership of the oil. And this is both a hindrance in some ways because it creates a nation of consumers who don't, you know, think about production as much. But on the other hand, it also strongly reinforces Venezuelan nationalism. Your other question was... Grassroots movement. I think it's very heterogeneous. There are parts of the country where the things are a mess. I've been to co-ops where people have more or less gotten 20,000, equivalent of $20,000, painted, bought a house for a a couple hundred dollars, painted it green, put a pine tree on it, called it a cooperative, pocketed the rest of the money. I've also seen fishing villages where the money was used to buy refrigeration equipment and for the first time make viable a microenterprise. in Lada, which is a western state, which has a deeper tradition of cooperatives, um, the local mayor there, another Chavez, Julio Chavez, no relationship to Hugo, um, was the mayor, and he's got just marvelous experimental things going on all over. People running their own municipal governments, really interesting. Um, on the other hand, there are places where the communal, where, where you had vibrant national grassroots, like they call them asambleas de barrio, barrio assemblies. Then all of a sudden, Chavez creates a law. Everybody has to have a communal council. If you have a communal council, you get this much money to distribute. Well, guess what happens? A few Venezuelans go, aha, I know how to get money. And even if there exists an assemblea or a local barrio organization, they create a shadow organization. They use their ties to the regime. They get the money. So you see, it's very heterogeneous. There are parts of the country where I think exciting, interesting experiments in participatory democracy are going on. There are other parts of the country in which, in tried and true populist, clientelistic manner, people are are robbing the government blind, and Chavez, frankly, has not been very successful, nor have I seen sufficient motivation on his part to really deal with the problem. Uh, Can I take this gentleman first? Then I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, cooperatives are one sector. Microenterprises are something a little bit different. It's the encouragement of actual kind of capitalist, small-scale capitalist enterprises made available through loans. There's a women's bank to encourage that's, uh, both cooperatives and microenterprises for women, especially in the tourist sector. Um, there's the co-ops. Then there is the, 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 co, uh, uh, the co-determined, co-managed enterprises. But this has caused a lot of dissent in the labor movement. For example, in the, in the oil unions, even the Chavista unions, some, what, what happens is the government encourages this a lot through the oil company. So oil company has the social fund. Very questionable because there's very little auditing of it. The company then says, okay, well, um, we're going to provide an, an, a loan so that somebody can buy a couple tanker, tanker uh, trucks and begin a distribution system. So they do that. But guess what? To do that, it means that the company-owned distribution system is dismantled, and the workers there then say, wait a minute, you're outsourcing. That's probably the more dangerous thing going on, is that on the one hand, they call this endogenous development. Agriculture, there's a lot of this as well. They're trying, you know, it's hard to evaluate. I, I, you can, I mean, where in Latin America or anywhere in the world has land reform been carried out with the sense of both justice and efficiency? They've tried a lot of microenterprises and co-ops in rural areas. And again, my impression is that it's a very mixed, very heterogeneous kind of experience so far. Yes? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Tom was next, and then I'll come. Yeah. Uh, my impression from being I couldn't agree more. There's this lack of sense of accountability, and part of that is a problem, again, within Chavismo. One of the things they could do to fix that would be to really find a way of building up the community media. And there are interesting, exciting experiments in community media, but it's very hard, for example, if you want to go to the state television system and raise the same complaints, you, you won't get in the door. Or if you get in the door and you say it, you'll be accused of being a squalido. And that's the name for opposition, you know? And that, you know, the, one of the things they could do to really, really make a difference, I think, well, the first steps they ought to do is really empower the community people to get behind the rhetoric, put some real resources behind the rhetoric, think about some innovative institutional mechanisms. I mean, the British do this with the BBC. Why can't the Venezuelans do it with community media? that allows a high degree of independence and autonomy, but also allows this media to operate independent of capitalist control. They really need that for accountability. They really need that because who's going to keep the government in check? What happens is that sometimes people who are very strongly supportive of the president and are upset about corruption in Mercal. What happens in Mercal? The subsidized food comes in. Oftentimes what happens is somebody in Mercal 
then, you know, if, if, if they got it at, let's say, half the price, they then sell it all to a friend who then sells it on the open market and they split the profit. And this gets denounced again and again on Aporea, on the media boards. But, you know, if you wanted to go to the state television network and do an investigation of corruption in Mercal, you can't do it. And that's, that's one of the places you could quickly make a difference if you want to really build participatory and effective democracy, is to really, you know, build a more effective media. Somewhere, yes, sir. Yeah. No, uh, remarkably little. There were some, let me take the last question first. Back um, when they were carrying out, actually, one of the most successful and important campaigns, one that has long-lasting consequences, was the uh, effort to get into the barrios and into the poor rural areas and give everybody their identity card. Without your identity card, you can't get anything, right? And so many people, they, they felt so excluded. It didn't make any difference. You could be born a poor mother, give birth in a hospital, and they wouldn't even record the name and the birth data. You know? And a lot of Colombians had come in during the 70s and 80s and stayed, hundreds of thousands. And in many cases, second generation. And Chavez, the Chavistas carried out in, I think it was, two, well, it was 2003, 2004, self-interested. You know? But nonetheless, a huge campaign to get people identity cards and get them registered. That's a very important aspect of inclusion getting people their basic citizenship rights. And there was some criticism for the opposition, of course, saw this as you're empowering Colombians. You're giving Colombian citizenship. It's exactly what they were doing. But some of these people have been there for 30 years. <laughs> now, it wasn't like new Colombians were coming across the border and being made citizens. These were people that had already lived in the barrios anonymously, without identity papers or anything. Okay? Did Chavez have a political interest in doing that? You bet. <laughs> um, and that generated a degree of anger and resentment towards Colombians. And there's some of that even at the popular level where they're seen as competition. Um, in terms of territorial disputes, Chavez actually is probably less nationalistic in this respect than many in the military are. Uh, there's no way that Chavez can turn around and say, uh, we're going to renounce the claims of, uh, our, our claims to a th uh, you know, two-thirds of Guyana. <laughs> the Esquibio, as they call it, any more than, than in uh, the United States, however much we might wish it could return Mex Texas to Mexico, however desirable that might be. And then, uh, on the other hand, in, the, in, in Zulia, there's a very strong regional traditionalism, and the government is very suspicious of U.S. intentions in the region and thinks and has charged that at times that the United States is trying to feed that, that regional sentiment to create sentiment for a breakaway and they see a parallel to what's going on in Bolivia and the Santa Cruz region. Hard to evaluate the veracity of those claims. Uh, there's been a long, simmering, sensitive issue between Venezuela and Colombia over control of the Gulf, where there are a lot of natural gas deposits. Uh, Chavez and Uribe actually tend, they're, they're, you know, they, they're, they go through these periods of intense bitter denunciations of one another, then the next thing is there's abrazos all around. You know? it's, it's back and forth. And I think in a lot of ways, Chavez is actually much less aggressive 
than many Venezuelans who've been fed a steady diet that, you know, this, uh, we can't get El Golfo as Nuestro and Esquibio was taken away by the British. Um, with Brazil, not too many property disputes. Uh, they had some problems with miners, come, got imperos coming over the border. Those seem to have settled down. There's issues with Colombia, not so much in the regions that I showed you before, but of course, accusations about the FARC finding sanctuaries. I think some of those are probably true. I also don't think that Chavez is inclined to tolerate them. I think Chavez sees much huge diplomatic costs, and, uh, despite what the magic computers, as they're called, have to say. Yes. How do you um, regard this, this unified uh, socialist party that they're trying to create? Does it have the potential of, of achieving autonomy beyond Chavez? Will we ever have Chavismans in Chavez, or is it oxymoron? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, I do think that yesterday's result, as I said earlier, shows that, if nothing else, this party can get the vote out. There has always been a tension, even in the days of the MVR. When Chavez first ran for office, the MVR is Movimiento Quinta, the V being Roman numeral for five, Republica. Why Fifth Republic is a long story, which is not very relevant, frankly. Um, even in those days, there was this tension. You know, what happens is, every time there's an election, they've had them every year, all the activists who are supposed to be improving health standards and doing education and working on co-ops, what do they all have to do? Campaign to win the election. And it kind of sucks the lifeblood out of all that other social energy. Uh, I, I wasn't down there for this, this campaign, so I don't know whether that, that happened, but reading the, some of the accounts, it looks as though compared to earlier efforts, with the MVR, for example, the 2004 referendum, Chavez basically came to a realization that the MVR as a political party was pretty useless. And instead, what he had to do was create a whole separate campaign structure to win the referendum. Uh, they lost the last referendum. They lost some very important areas, even though overall the party did quite well. The PESU, nonetheless, <laughs> lost some important, especially the Caracas mayor's race. Okay? This time it looks as though they really came through. The turnout was remarkable. It was like 70% in the whole country. But, again, um, the, the answer to your question is another question. Ball yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the thing that's positive about the Venezuelan experience, in my view, is that your Chavez sometimes talks about replacing liberal or representative democracy with participatory democracy. I, call me... Prejudice, but there's, I, think, I think there are some important values in liberal democracy and representative democracy that, that have to be preserved in some way. And there are other times when Chavez talks about, you know, in a sense, enhancing democracy through participation. Then I get a whole lot more comfortable with the project. So, you know, this is the tension. Those of you that have studied revolution at all or understand the revolutionary process, right? Revolutions are mobilizations. David After realized a long time ago the American political scientist famous for studying comparative revolution. Revolutions are mobilizations. Uh, Tom in, in, in Nicaragua, right? I mean, when the Nicaragua revolution was at its best, the Sandinistas were mobilizing the grassroots and the grassroots were getting involved, right? There was a certain autonomy going on at the grassroots. Um, and I do think you need a political party, but somehow building a political party that really is responsive to the grassroots that's a hard project to achieve. So I'm sorry to evade your question. I don't, I, I'd like to think there is a yes answer to your question. Um, but I, 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 I'm not sure there is.
sir. Okay. I mean, we can stay longer. I mean, it's up to you. Okay. Okay. You talked about the remaining oil reserves, and that's about one or two years of the Soviet Union. Oh, excuse me, fiscal reserves. Maybe I misspoke. Yeah. But, but with the decline in the oil price, yeah. it seems hard to sustain that. So, I mean, that suggests that there needs to be restructuring of international trade relations in order for the project to succeed. And yeah. I know there was some talk about you know, different kinds of models, South-South trade, and I'm wondering what's happening with that. And, okay. Well, in, in historic terms, the oil price of oil is actually still pretty good. The average... I've been searching for a long time for a figure, the average cost of production per barrel in Venezuela. And, and I haven't been able to find it. I did find an estimate some years ago on a retired uh, person who was kind of neutral in the politics and who was the, 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 the chief financial officer of PDVSA, who estimated that the service contracts were producing oil on average at about $14 a barrel. So if we take that $14, $15 a barrel. There's some fields where I'm sure it's cheaper. Heavy oil, a lot more expensive. Prop, you know, at $35, if I offered you an investment of $14 that would return $35, you'd think that was pretty good, right? So there is, there, there is still money there. What there isn't are the rents that allow you, on the one hand, to fund all the social missions and then have enough of it overflow to allow, they call them the bully bourgeoisie, the people with connections. They may have even voted against Chavez, but they've got connections to the government. Or to, you know, the, the, you go to Caracas, Eastern Caracas, and there are sushi restaurants that have opened. And, you know, you see people driving SUVs when, you know, gas is the equivalent of about, well, let's see. This in Venezuela costs more than the equivalent amount of gasoline. Okay? So, so you know, the, the, the money is it's not going to be high enough to sustain both. It makes even more urgent the project that's been, since 1935, it's been called Sow the Oil in Venezuela. I don't think the oil's going to run out, by the way. That's always, it was the fear, the oil will run out. Venezuela, especially if you count the heavy oil reserves, this is one reason why it's geopolitically it's so important. It, it actually, if you count heavy oil reserves, Venezuela's heavy oil reserves, oil reserves, exceed the total oil reserves in the entire Middle East. Entire Middle East. Now, it technically and economically, it's not feasible at this time. So a lot depends what's going to happen with oil in the future and prices. But it's a, you know extraordinarily important country when you think about the future, which is also, by the way, one reason why so many of the oil companies were willing to renegotiate instead of insisting on their contracts. They know how important the country is to the business. So, you know, it makes more urgent that they actually make some of these endogenous production projects work, and that includes some accountability. And it means some hard choices, I think. It's going to be very hard. You know, they, they enjoyed relative stability from 2004 up until fairly recently. Things have quieted down. The polarization was less intense. You could walk around Caracas, and you didn't feel like you were in the middle of a political war all the time. Now, I think, I think it's going to be more difficult to do both things, you know, to fund social missions and still have a lot of these rents find their way into the 
more affluent sectors, both the ones who are in the opposition and the so-called Bali bourgeoisie as well. So I, I would anticipate more intense class conflict coming. Not hard to figure out the price of oil drops like that. Ah, new world order, though? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons you see Chavez so interested in relations with Iran. It's very similar populations. You know, Iran, in contrast to, say, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, has a very large population, relatively well-educated, maybe, maybe more so than Venezuela, um, has a similar demographic profile in a lot of ways. Uh, the Iranians produce tractors. They're importing, Venezuelans are importing tractors for these agricultural products. Tractor factories, bicycle factories. Now, do they work efficiently? Again, the same question. Who's auditing? Who's finding out if these things are really working? And I don't know anybody that's doing that. You want to take this last question? Yeah. And also, we asked them how they felt things were before Chavez had come to power. And they, they became quite passionate when you described how they were fighting to the mm-hmm. nail to defend the things that they gained <coughs> Yeah. Well, you know, you put your finger. I mean, that's a, there's an behind your question. As, uh, if I can just treat it a little differently, there's also a question: those kinds of people you met, and I've met the same sorts of people. Those are the real activists. Those are the people who report in the survey. Not only we participate, we lead, right? They're the ones that wear red shirts. They're the ones also who probably, who if this election was like others, were the ones who kind of maybe stopped doing the healthcare programs to get people to the polls. Um, they're also in a position to direct government benefits to supporters and deny them to others. And, and you just hope. You know, somehow, somehow I think for Venezuela, the kind of notions we have a civil society, that everything's separate from the state, probably not going to work very well. But on the other hand, there's got to be some autonomy and the ability of people like that to hold the government accountable. Those are probably the same people who are quite angry about corruption in Mercado who are quite angry about inefficiencies and waste. And the attitude of a lot of them has been up to now, it's not the president's fault. It's these local guys. He doesn't know what's going on. Then the president goes out to a con, you know, he goes out to a province, and, you know, then people complain, and there may be some, some guy who's been working really hard, and ah, it's, you know, this is where Chavez really, his leadership, leadership I think, is quite weak, you know, in terms of, of understanding that that there's that a party, a movement, whatever it is, has to have a degree of autonomy, and there has to be. You, you saw in my data. I think it's a remarkable, given how polarized the country is, how much at least expressions in these in these activist barrios, and even in the middle class, there is for tolerance, and and I think that's genuine. It fits in with everything I've thought about Venezuela. It's the positive side of the 40 years of liberal democracy that they had that more or less now goes in the history dustbin as a big waste of time, which wasn't. You know? and, and I think that's the... That, so I think, I think there's a mass base there for tolerance and for building a very inclusionary democracy that has room for dissent. Unfortunately, you know, I, I think 
I, and however personally tolerant Chavez might be, however much, in a sense, you think about 2002, that was his chance. If he wanted to create a dictatorship, that was the chance. When he came back in that helicopter from the coup attempt, he could have gotten up and said, all these guys are going to jail right now. He could have given orders to sweep, round them all up. And he didn't do that. Now, he's not a perfect Democrat. He's got a number of things in his record I could criticize him for. That did not happen. So what has to happen instead? There has to be some way of holding government accountable. There has to be some way of making these activists feel as though what they're, that what they're accomplishing is permanent. And if the resources start drying up and those activists begin to see that people in eastern Caracas are still living the same high life they were before, there's going to be trouble. That's too pessimistic a conclusion. Thank you all. Thank you all.